6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 24 and 25. Now, one thing I might point out, God used Babylon, but he did not use Babylon because of its merits. Babylon didn't merit some special role for God to use it for his purposes, yet he used it for his purposes. And we should all remember that, too, as God uses us. We should be, it's a wonderful blessing to be used to the Lord, and yet at the same time, we must recognize that the Lord has his purposes. They don't imply merit in the vehicle. And uh, the reason Babylon was used by God was because not because of Babylon's merit, but because of Israel's sin. Now, why do I make that point? Well, I guess I'm worried about the United States of America. Because if uh, where Jeremiah points to Shiloh and the northern kingdom in his prophecies, which disappeared 100 years earlier and told us that Judah should have learned from that experience, I hear echoes in Jeremiah's words for our ears, how we should learn from Judah's experience. We were a nation called by God to, be, to bring the light of Christ to the world. That's what Christopher Columbus' parents had that vision. That's why they named him Christ-bearer, Christopher. And the whole history of the United States, when you study it, say, for example, with The Light and the Glory, uh, Peter Marshall and David Manuel's book, they give you a whole different perspective at the or of the origins of this country. And to see us now clearly have no pretense to being uh, ascribed as a Christian nation, embracing secular humanism and, and worse as a country, is God going to judge us? I don't know how he cannot. And will he use the same mechanisms that he used with Judah? I don't know. But there he used the enemies of Judah as his instruments. Will God use the enemies of the United States to be his instrument? I don't know. It's a very, very heavy thing to give some prayerful thought to. But we'll keep moving. Verse 13, And I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book which Jeremiah had prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves of them. Now, by, he's talking now about the Babylonian slavery of Judah. Many nations and great kings shall make slaves of them also, and I will recompense them according to their deeds, according to the works of their own hands. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, and cause all nations to whom I send thee to drink it. And they shall drink, and be moved, and be mad, because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup at the Lord's hand and made all the nations to drink unto whom the Lord had sent me, to wit Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation, a horror, a hissing, and a curse as it is this day. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and his servants and his princes and all his people, and then all the mixed people and all the kings of the land of Uz and the kings of the land of the Philistines and Ashkelon and Gaza and Ekron and the remnant of Ashdod, that Edom and Moab and the children of Ammon and all the kings of Tyre and all the kings of Sidon and all the kings of the coasts which are beyond the sea, Dedan and Tema and Buzz and all that are in the utmost corners. 
and all the kings of Arabia and all the kings of the mixed people that dwell in the desert, the Bedouins, if you will, and all the kings of the Zimri and all the kings of the Elam and all the kings of the Medes and all the kings of the north, far and near, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world which are upon the face of the earth, and the king of Shishak shall drink after them. Well, a lot going on here. Uh, by the way, these, uh, these verses here are connected by the Septuagint to chapters 46 through 51 of Jeremiah. We're going to get into a lot of this in more t detail later. Now, you notice, the, you couldn't help but notice the expression here of the cup of his fury. Now, that phrase is not an unfamiliar phrase to you and I. We see it in chapters 49, 51 of Jeremiah, Job 21, Psalm 60, Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 23, Mark 10 and 14, John 18, Revelation 14, that is a very familiar phrase, Revelation 16 and Revelation 18. This cup of his wrath is a common phrase. How many times does it occur in the Bible? 14. Kind of interesting, I think. The cup can also be used as a blessing. We'll find that phrase in Psalm 16 and 23, Luke 22, twice, 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11, if you count all those up, it's seven times as a blessing. So it's an idiom used broadly, but we're very familiar with this phrase as a cup of wrath or his fury or his indignation, if you will. Now, from that, we then go to this judgment of all these nations. And the same nations are detailed in chapters 46 through 51 of Jeremiah, so we'll be encountering them again. And it starts from the south, goes to the north, from Egypt, if you will, to Persia, basically. The judgment begins with Jerusalem and Judah. Not surprising. Judgment always begins where? In the house of God, New Betcha. Now, from verses 19 through 22, we have the Egyptians, uh, who were themselves were of mixed blood, by the way. Uz, you may recall from Job chapter 1, verse 1, that's uh, north, east or northeast of Edom. Um, the Philistine cities are mentioned there, all but Gath are next. Uh, the remnant of Ashdod, you may have caught, uh, that was because it was destroyed after a 29-year siege earlier and was rebuilt in Nehemiah's day. And so it's the remnant of Ashdod is, that is mentioned. Edom, uh, Moab, Ammon, uh, these are all blood relations with Israel uh, that are mentioned. Of course, Tyre and Sidon up in Phoenicia we're familiar with. From verse 23 on, we get to the Arabian tribes. Dedan is a familiar one from Ezekiel 38 and elsewhere. Dedan was a son of Abraham by Keturah. And uh, in Genesis 25, verse 3, he dwells southeast of Edom. Tema is 250 miles southeast of Edom in Arabia, son of Ishmael in Genesis 24. Also shows up in Job chapter 6, verse 19. Buzz is descended from uh, Nahor, brother of Abraham in Genesis 22, and generally speaks of the northern Arabian tribes. And then we also had the, uh, uh, the uh, Bedouins of the uh, of, uh, Arabia there. We also had Cushite, Cushite elements run through here. Zimri is a puzzlement. Uh, we're not sure where Zimri was. Uh, it, he shows up in Numbers 25, 1 Kings 16, 2 Kings 9, 1 Chronicles uh, uh, 7, 8, and 9. We're not sure, though, exactly where Zimri is. It's possible it's the same as Zimran, who is a son of Abraham by Keturah in Genesis 24, 2. And if so, he apparently dwelt between the Arabian Peninsula and Persia in that general area. Elam and Media are mentioned here. Uh, they are east of the Tigris River. Elam is northeast uh, of the Persian Gulf, about 200 miles east of Babylon. 
And of course, Media is north and west of Persia and forms an alliance with the Persians to become the Medo-Persian Empire that subsequently puts down Babylon and in turn is captured by the Greeks, if you're familiar with your ancient history. The Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and then of course the Romans, as is chronicled by Daniel in chapter 2 in advance and in chapter 7, very, very, very dramatically. Um, now we get to something else that might interest you. We get to verse 26. It's always nice to have profound, important truths, but it's also nice to throw out some trivia. And I'm going to now give you some trivia. All the kings of the north, far and near, one from another, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world, which are upon the face of the earth, and the king of Shishak will drink after them. This is one of these peculiar oddities. The word Shishak happens to be an encrypted form of the name Babylon. And that may come as a surprise to you that there are secret codes in the Scripture. If you are a student of cryptoanalysis or crypt, uh, cryptographic writing, uh, you would be familiar with, you might encounter, if you do historical studies of that, that there are three kinds of encryptions in the Hebrew that are found in the ancient text. One is called atabash, and it comes from a contraction of the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. By the way, alphabet itself is a Hebrew word for the alphabet, okay? Aleph, Tibet. Yeah? But the point is, uh, well, you may not realize that in English. There are several words you may not realize. I, I remember when I was in school, teacher always said, don't say ain't. I don't know why. It's a good Hebrew word. Do you know that? Yeah, it is. It really is. When you say ain't, you're, you're borrowing a Hebrew word. It means exactly what you think it does. But also alphabet happens to be a Hebrew word. Those are, see, even in a Gentile background, you pick up some of this stuff. But anyway, uh, there is a way, one of the simplest ways of doing an encryption is to do a transposition of letters. Okay? And one of the ways, if you take the alphabet, if we took the English alphabet with 26 letters, we could fold the Z under the A. We could, we could fold it back so that the Z is under the A and, and, and all the court, other letters correspondingly. Okay? So that if you, wherever you use an A, you use a Z. Wherever you use a B, you use a Y. And wherever you use a C, you use an E. You know, you'd, you'd do a simple transposition. Now, if you fold it end to end that way, in the English, there's 26 letters. In the Hebrew, there's 22. So if you fold the last 11 back around so that the, the 22nd letter is under the first and so forth, you have a paradigm or a, a, a cipher that is known as atbash. And if you take the Hebrew letters for Babylon, Babel actually, and transposition them, you get Shishak. Now, that occurs in the Bible here in chapter 25, verse 26. It shows up in chapter 51 twice, and also in Isaiah chapter 7. Now, in Isaiah chapter 7, they use a different form. There's another form called Albam in which you take the 11 and you just slide them over so that the, so that the 12th letter comes under the first. In other words, the letters stay in the same order, they're just transposed. That scheme gives you a different set of encryptions. And in Isaiah chapter 7, you can read there about a plot where the uh, northern kingdom was in a conspiracy with some kings. They ended up getting defeated, but it turns out you'll encounter the name Ramalia, and you'll also encounter the name Tabil. And they're the same guy. One's the encrypted version of the other. And all that does is give you an insight as to who would have been in charge had they won the battle. They lost, so it doesn't matter. 
So you say, well, gee, that sounds great, Chuck. What has it got to do with anything? Not a lot, except, except, if you're a student of cryptographic writing, cryptoanalysis, if you're in the intelligence agencies or whatever, and you're interested in crypto, crypto, cryptography, it's an interesting historical, oh, there's a third type of encryption, which is uh, in which there's numerical values of the letters, and that's you, you don't see it in the scripture to our knowledge, but you do see it in the Babylonian Talmud. So these three forms of ancient, relatively simple ciphers are found in the ancient texts. Now, as I say, if you're a student of cryptography, then these are just simple, interesting historical oddities. If, however, you have a mystical view of the Scripture, if you believe that the Holy Spirit puts nothing in here but by his design, then the emergence of these simple ciphers, I believe, could be very significant because the Holy Spirit has given us a signpost telling us that there may be more, maybe more sophisticated, and maybe some of them requiring a spiritual insight, not simply the rigors of mechanical, tra mechanical translational languages. And if that's true, then maybe we have a totally different uh, possible insights when we get to Revelation 13, 18, the most famous cipher of them all, with a 603 score and six. That may have nothing to do with anything you've heard before. It may have, but I believe its answer is in the Scripture, not in, in the, the classical geometrical type of analyses. So that's a little excursion that you can mull over. You may ask, then, well, wait a minute. Why would Jeremiah bother putting in Babel, the term Babylon in encryption? Here. He's spoken so glibly of them before. Yes, but not derogatorily, and if this passage might have been written when Nebuchadnezzar was at the gates. So he may have used a code name in lieu of the standard. That's speculation we don't know, and I just share that with you as just a side insight. It's just a little uh, minor color on the name Shishak, but it may have a scholastic significance if indeed the Holy Spirit has put it here as a hint of others that may require more sophisticated insights to comprehend. Okay, that gets us down to verse 27. We're moving right along. Therefore, thus shalt thou uh, say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink and be drunk, and vomit and fall, and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. There's a good graphic promise for you. <laughs> King James doesn't pull its punches. Verse 28, It shall be that if they refuse to take the cup at thine hand to drink, then thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ye shall certainly drink. For lo, I begin to bring evil on the city which is called by my name. And should ye be utterly unpunished? Ye shall not be unpunished, for I will call a sword upon all the inhabitants of the earth, saith the Lord of hosts. Whoa, we just changed subjects, didn't we? This prophecy is not constrained to the judgment on Babylon later. It is uh, not the judgment of just um, the invasion of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar, etc. The scope of this prophecy, as so often happens, goes far beyond the immediate horizon of the prophet. We see that in Daniel chapter 11, from verse 36 and 40. The, the gears just shift. Uh, in Revel in uh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, all these places, we'll see one thing being addressed, but the language very clearly shifts gears 
and broadens its real subject to something quite uh, much more, much broader. So, um, okay, so I, I will go a sword upon all the inhabitants of the earth, saith the Lord of hosts. And Zechariah tells us where does he gather them together, all nations, to battle against whom? Jerusalem. I'll make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. I'll bring all nations against Jerusalem. There's not a battle of Armageddon. That's the staging area. Armageddon is to the is to the gathering against Jerusalem what England was to the Normandy invasion. It's the gather I will gather them together, a place which is called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Stage it for what? To go against Jerusalem. That day is coming. Verse 30 Therefore prophesy against them all these words, and say unto them, The Lord shall roar from on high. Like a lion, huh? And utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon his habitation. He shall give a shout like those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. Who? Hanoi shall come even to the ends of the earth, for the Lord hath a controversy with the nations. He will plead with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, evil shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the farthest parts of the earth. And the slain of the Lord shall be at that day. From one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth, they shall not be lamented, neither gathered nor buried. They shall be refuse upon the ground. Wail, ye shepherds, and cry, Wallow in the ashes, ye chief of the flock. For the days of your slaughter and of your dispersions are accomplished, and ye shall fall like a pleasant vessel. And the shepherds shall have no way to flee, nor the chief of the flock to escape. A voice of the cry of the shepherds and a wailing of the chief of the flock shall be heard, for the Lord hath spoiled their pasture. And the peaceable habitations are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He hath forsaken his covert like a lion, for the land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and also because of his fierce anger. Whoa! Did Jeremiah shift gears on us? Did he throw us a curve? You betcha. There's much more here than was literally dealt with in, in uh, Judea, where Nebuchadnezzar dealt, and a much, much broader sense of language. Now, the, this idea of the treading of the grapes and so forth um, that we found there in verses um, uh, back there in, in uh, the middle of that, um, Isaiah 63 describes that same thing. Revelation chapter 14, verses 19 through 20, describes the same thing. Revelation chapter 19 describes him. Both uh, Isaiah 63 and Revelation 19 describes the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in which he has a vesture dipped in what? Blood. His blood? No, his blood was shed at Calvary. What blood is splattered on his garments? Blood of his enemies. The blood of his enemies. Strange. You know, you and I have a tough time with that, because that's not the 
the Sunday school Jesus that we are so comfortable with. It's pictured in little storybooks, you know, uh, being the gentle, meek servant of the Lord, and as as we see him depicted in his in his earthly ministry. This is a powerful commander coming to take possession of that which he purchased and dispossessing the land of its usurpers. This is what we see um, graphically portrayed throughout the Old Testament prophecies, and yet those same idioms are climaxed in a book that completes the New Testament, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation seems strange to your ears only because it speaks in the Old Testament idioms. The, old, the, the book of Revelation is structurally modeled by the book of Joshua well in advance, but they, they fit structurally uh, identically. A couple other small points. In verse 30 there, we notice the Lord shall roar from on high. Who goes around the world like a roaring lion, seeking whom he, whom he may devour? Satan, familiar phrase from the New Testament. Did you realize that that phrase is Satan attempting to be a counterfeit? Who goes about like a roaring lion? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Thus described several times in the Old Testament that way. So when you hear Paul talking about Satan going around like a roaring lion, uh, yes, he is, and I'm not here to disparage his efforts because uh, Jude tells us that we should not speak evil of dignities and uses Satan as the very example. At the same time, even in that, he's a counterfeit. Even in that, he's um, an imitation. And, of course, you can find that uh, all through uh, Amos and Joel and Isaiah and Revelation 10 and so on. I think you've been spared jumping prematurely into chapter 26. So we'll take that up next time. When we get into chapter 26, it is really the results of what we read in chapter 7. If you may recall, when we were in Jeremiah chapter 7, the first 20 verses dealt with what we call the temple address. Jeremiah situated himself in the outer court on a feast day when there's lots of crowds and gave an address. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. That address is summarized in just a few verses in chapter 26. But then what happens is that so incensed his enemies that he's tried for heresy. And the ecclesiastical court wants to hang him. But the civil court comes to his rescue. Very strange inversion. The layman, in effect, in, in an ecclesiastical sense, uh, save him. And uh, he, is, he is acquitted, if you will. Even though he made no defense of himself, he didn't care. That's their problem. Um, and uh, we'll, that's what we'll be dealing with with uh, chapter 26 next time. The, the, the whole uh, business of, um, of uh, Jeremiah and being tried for heresy. And, um, you know, more of, the, more of these issues that uh, he gets head on. Now, more and more you're going to discover as we go that buried in, in uh, Jeremiah, it's almost as if the idioms pick up. We're going to find more and more little nuggets that relate to uh, the subject matter you and I are perhaps more directly interested in. Uh, we're going to discover the very idioms of the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, and so forth, uh, described in here. And uh, uh, we're going to find, in fact, the whole thing is going to uh, get more and more uh, graphic, more and more relevant for you and I in, 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 a, in a more classical, prophetical sense. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Amazing guy, Jeremiah. 
God gave him incredible visibility far beyond his immediate ministry, the ministry to Judah and, and, and the coming captivity of Nebuchadnezzar. His book has all kinds of details that affect you and I today, right now, as we read our daily paper. We're going to see increasingly evidence that God has pre-written the time you and I live in. He has uh, declared what he is going to do. We, you and I are heading into a climactic period of world history. And Jeremiah, as all the Old Testament prophets uh, do, have a great deal to say about that, and we're going to increasingly focus on that. But what does that mean? It's fun to dig into some of these stuff, and it's also always gratifying to see how the Word of God interprets itself and, and illuminates one piece, illuminates another, and we learn from that and we grow. That's great. But what does it mean for you and I? You and I have to come to grips with the fact that God took the trouble to specifically describe the time of history that you and I are moving into, because Israel is no longer dispersed. She's regathered in the land. Jerusalem is no longer trodden down by the Gentiles. If you visit Jerusalem today, it flies into the Star of David for the first time since Christ's, the week that he was crucified. He predicted that it would be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That peculiar biblical period that God set out from the days of Nebuchadnezzar till now are about over. What does that mean for you and I? A lot of things. It means we better do our homework. It's time to really re-examine what Jesus Christ was all about, who he said he was, what he was about to do, what he expects of us, what he is, what what uh, what promises he's made us, and those things should affect our moment by moment commitment to him. Jesus Christ does not simply want to be the most important thing in your life. For many of us, that's a big step, but that's not enough. He wants to be your whole life. Jesus Christ wants to be your Lord, not just your Savior. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.